0: I certainly feel very angry for those people uh, who have been on Twitter blasting away because it's real for them. It's not to be dismissed. If they feel that way, there's a reason why they feel that way, and that needs to be examined.
1: There are plenty of people angry about the lack of diversity in newsrooms, and they have the right to be. This has been a problem people have been talking about for years, but now is the time that something has to be done about it. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Doug Mitchell is a returning guest to our podcast. As a founder of Next Generation Radio, he trains early career professionals and college students in digital-first and multimedia journalism. He's also had a long career in public media. Doug recently wrote an opinion piece for Newman Reports entitled "Diversity, Equality, Inclusion, and the Pipeline Problem." Welcome to the podcast, or should, should say, welcome back to the podcast, Doug.
0: Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me back.
1: No, it was, it was long overdue. I've always been meaning to, to bring you back. I, we run into each other at Online News Association Conference or, or, or whatever, and we know a lot of the same people. And you do a lot of the types of stuff that we're really interested in, which is, you know, getting more journalists trained to be better journalists in this digital world. But anywho, just first of all, let's talk a little bit about Next Generation Radio for those who may not be familiar with it. Tell me about it. What is the mission and how does it accomplish that mission?
0: Next Generation Radio is officially 20 years old this month, having launched. And I think official because that's when I bought the domain name, nextgenerationradio.org,.com,.net, and .us. And I did all of that because I didn't want anybody else to have it. That was fundamentally my- <laughs> the reason. It's become part of a solution to finding people who are interested in what we do in public media you know back when i started it was public radio and it was fundamentally we did traditional radio reporting training including putting shows together with a host you know hosts had to audition who were the selected students and you know we had to come up with a format and all those other things and then program went on hiatus after 2008 but i still ended up doing training and then we brought it back in 2013 And at that time, I thought, you know, podcasting had really started to explode then. So I thought what we really need to do is train our next generation to really think about, you know, audio, interviewing, digital media, tools that are available to share audio and all those things, but still doing the five-day sprint, as I now call it. You know, starting on a Monday and finishing with their their stories and such on a Friday. So NextGen has changed in what we deliver. But the fundamental point is to find, train, and hopefully bring into our system people who are either just out of college or you know, less than five years into their career and sort of give them either a refresher or a total immersion in audio and digital media.
1: So what type of people are you seeing come into this program?
0: So it's, it's really interesting. So our numbers are, I, I keep track, I have a spreadsheet. I, that's one thing I've taught myself is how to use a spreadsheet. Not the most exciting thing in the world, I've always tried to avoid it, but these days it's helpful to answer questions like yours. So since 2013, we have 72% women in our cohort and we're about 60% women of color. These are the selected groups. So you can imagine the overall group, the percentages are a little higher. So fundamentally we're seeing, and I think it's a result of the stories that we do, our marketing, if you will, and just the interest in learning a broader set of skills So when they're either getting out of school or moving on from one job to the other, they have developed a sense and an idea of what they're capable of doing. They can go with a sense of of positivity. They're paired one-to-one with a mentor for a week. And then since then we now have, since 2013, we now have, I counted yesterday, almost 460 people in our Slack community. Um, And these are all alumni and or mentors with our program. So. The kinds of people we're seeing are people who are interested in what we do. Before the pandemic, we traveled. <laughs> we, physically, we physically showed up in places. Now we're, we've are pivoted to remote. We can get into that later. But generally, the interest level remains high. And I remain incredibly pleased and enthusiastic about the kinds of people we're finding.
1: Yeah, I'm kind of curious because are these people who, who may have been in journalism school and they didn't particularly pick up skills? Or is it more people who just really kind of want to enrich what they have or, or change the direction of their career?
0: I think the latter, because while we do partner, we just finished a project with the Edinburgh School at the University of Southern California. So that's a very well-known story journalism program. Other places we go, we partner with stations that are on college campuses or stations that are like Oregon Public Broadcasting, which is a statewide network. So I would say it's a range of different kinds of people Lots of different kinds of people in different kinds of circumstances. Utah, Oregon, Texas, California. We'll do Florida next year. I'm in talks with people in Nashville. My alma mater, Oklahoma State, wants us to do a program around the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So we're getting everywhere and getting all kinds of people and with extreme intention in doing so.
1: You mentioned that when they come in and they do this sprint that they end up with a type of story. What what are the types of stories that you guys are working on?
0: So we do basically story core. If you're familiar with that. It's the non narrated interviews where somebody's telling you a story. It's about a particular topic. We have a particular theme. Up until the pandemic we were doing, we called it first days. So go find someone, the students would go find someone who could, you know, remember You know, their first days coming to the United States as an immigrant. And that could have been after World War II or it could have been two weeks ago. And then up into the pandemic, we pivoted to what we call life in COVID-19. And so now we're finding people, our students are finding people just talking about their lives today, the way things are for them now. Most of the interviews that we've done so far with the three projects we have are, again, a range of people from people who had eateries, People who were artists, people who were, we had one who was a Latina symphony conductor. You know, how do you do all that on Zoom? (laughs) You know, how do you continue to maintain the things that you had been doing for so long when you can't leave the house or you can't leave, you know, wherever you are? So we have pivoted from a technical standpoint, but we're still finding the kinds of people that have a story to tell. We let them tell it. So there's no reporter in the story. So, and I even tell them, like, if you're looking for a project where you're going to learn how to stand in front of a camera or talk into a microphone, this is not your project. This is about other people. We want to hear other people's stories. We don't need a reporter in it translating what the other person said. And it's very different. You have to think differently. You have to execute differently. They still write an 800-word piece. And they write a 250 to 300-word reflection. We do shareable audio through audiograms. You still have to take pictures, and they do a video stand-up. Like a host intro, so they're still doing a lot of the cross section of digital media. The focus, of course, is audio. So that's our program. That's what we do in five days. It is a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I've seen your uh, you do these big uh, boards where you have your flow chart.
0: We now use a uh, a program called Euro. So it's all virtual now. So the big, but it's still the big board. And if you look across the top of that board, you still see all the stuff that they do during the course of a week. It's a lot. It's just a lot. But at the end i think each of them not only feels a sense of accomplishment and achievement but they feel good about themselves that they got it done you know because ultimately what opportunities are you going to have as you're starting out your career when everybody's telling you no i'm sorry we went with someone else <laughs> for the interview at least this is an opportunity to at least Build some confidence in your skills, and that's that's another part of what
1: we do. What I like about it is, especially the the type of stories that you're doing, which are which are really kind of almost uh, you know sort of a first person monologue, people telling their stories. I mean, it's certainly very compelling, especially in an environment in an audio environment where more and more people are interested in podcasts, that they they want to get the the narrator out of the picture. And they, because really what you want to do is you want that person to tell their story. But the the trick of it is, it's not just tell me what you're doing. It's actually you have to interview them. They have to talk to them a certain way exactly. in order exactly. for them to tell that story.
0: Exactly. It's a conversation like we're having. In fact, before any of the teams go, when we say go out, we don't mean go out. Necessarily. Exactly. But before they do their interview, they sit with our managing editor visuals lead and they walk through the questions. They walk through the visual potential. They walk through you know sources. They we do social sourcing. You know who are the organizations that would be interested? We do an audience focused design thinking exercise. Who are the people that you think would be interested in the story? Because most reporters don't ever, you know, we don't think about that. That's for some other department. So we also have them thinking about if you're going to interview a Latina Symphony conductor, who else would be interested in something like that? I mean, it's sort of right up the alley of the stations that play classical music, right? They may have, in fact, played a symphony, a recorded symphony by that person. But we do all of those things, again, during the course of a week to get them to think differently about media, media production, and then who are the consumers that want this sort of thing. So you're right. Everybody's wanting podcasts because you feel closer to it. You know, you feel much closer to it than you're turning on the radio. And there's a need for news and information delivery, too but this is just another way of doing doing another form of journalism.
1: Well, and you you touch on sort of one of the keys in you know in being a podcast creator is identifying your audience. I think he has even go further into the discussion we're going to have about diversity. Part of, you know, telling a good story is identifying a person who can tell a good story and help them to create that. But then also understanding that How you can make that relatable to people. And so it's important for you to know who your audience is and what's going to interest them and the type of guest that's going to interest them. So even though you may have this sort of story that may be outlandish or or outside their experience, you find somebody who can tell that story and connect, then you've accomplished a huge thing.
0: Yeah, it's like, who's it for? And who is this actually for? We ask those questions. I mean, I've sat in the way back in the day, sitting in the editorial meetings, and it kind of doesn't get asked. You know, another media property has this story, so we should go, we should be doing that story. You know, and they all kind of feed off each other in that way, which is why you see, again, I'm not denigrating it, that it's not necessary. But I think what we're doing is providing yet another avenue to which you can do journalism. And that is getting closer to your subject, getting closer to what they're talking about, and not being in the story, letting them talk, you know, let people talk, you know, you still have to edit.
1: That's the thing. You are in the story. It's even somebody who's, who's writing up an interview. I mean, they're in there somewhere, but, you know, you don't necessarily want to be front and center.
0: Right. You know, there's ethics that's going into it as well. We want to make sure that the person is representing themselves truthfully. There's fact checking that goes on constantly. We make sure that person actually is truly representing who they say they are. And then for their, you know, for the consumers, the audience, you have to decide who is it that would be interested in this and how do I reach them? So that's the upside of social media, is that you can use it for good. You can reach out to organizations, to people, everybody's fairly connected, and telling others, hey, I'm working on this story about this person and the challenges they have in conducting symphonies remotely. You'll find people and they'll go, oh, I didn't know you were doing that. And so then they'll, you know, then they will start working virally that way. And then, you know, this is heinous, but I say, okay, and then it can go on the radio. <laughs> yeah, you know, being on the radio is sort of secondary to me. And it has been for a while. And then, you know, here in the pandemic, all the podcast numbers, you know, not all of them, but a lot of podcast numbers, particularly for NPR, have shot through the roof because of subject matter and also because nobody's commuting. You know, so, I mean, I don't know if you saw the the articles that the NPR's in car or listening was down 22% or something like that. 20-some percent, but the podcast listening was shot, was through
1: the roof. Yeah, and part of that is, you know, coming from something of a radio background, it's because, you know, that's across radio, even for commercial radio. People are mostly interacting with their radio when they're in their car. But, you know, some of the things we've kind of been talking around, I think is a larger conversation going on in newsrooms about who are the audiences who we're reaching and how do we tell and represent their stories. And I think this kind of connects with the article that you wrote for the Neiman Reports, Tell me about what was your thought behind writing that article.
0: They reached out to me, I think it all started back in July on Twitter. My good friend and colleague, Robert Hernandez, started this hashtag, Doug stories, basically blowing up Twitter one weekend. And I think they eventually, they saw that and then reached out to me and wanted me to write something about diversity and inclusion. And I initially wasn't going to. Most of my personality, I I mean, I may be talking a lot, but I usually don't talk a lot. (laughs) I'd rather do the work and just focus on the work. But I thought of it as an opportunity to really kind of test out some, some thinking I had regarding the relationship between we need it now in the way that we produce, you know, shows, even podcasts, everything's on a deadline, right? Everything is always, you know, in fact, when people ask me for a reference, I'm like, when do you need it, I need to add it to my calendar. So I need the reminder to come up. So I can, you know, all of that. We're all, I don't know how many years you've been around, but that's where we're built. We're built that way. So I said, Hmm, I wonder if that has an effect on our hiring, our recruitment, our hiring, and probably maybe our retention. But I think on the front end, this need it now thing might be an issue. So I just, in that article, just sort of walked through my thinking on two terms. They were introduced to me, my Pete Woods at NPR. We were talking one time, and he talked about transactionalism and relational. And picking, you know, one is transactional and one is relational. And I thought, all right, so we're, we're pretty transactional in a lot of the ways we do recruiting because oftentimes I have a job, I need to fill it, who you got. And that's really as deep as it gets. And for me, it's all about the relational in that to be successful, to have people like come into our program, spend a week, even though it's only five days with a mentor, that is about getting it done, but it's also about building relationships, beginning the process of building relationships. There is, and I wrote this on LinkedIn one time about the long game. I certainly don't have the expectation that people are going to end up and land some get their jobs immediately, but you know a career is a lifelong thing, and it has to be built based on relationships, not necessarily transactionalism. So I just kind of, no, 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 I just felt like I needed to say something about urging my colleagues who do recruiting, hiring, focus on retention, that our transactional ways of doing things are probably a large part of the issue when it comes to diversity.
1: Yeah, we need to fill a, a seat. We're not necessarily thinking beyond that.
0: You have a hole in the show. I need a piece. Can you throw it in there? And I worked on the whole shows, It was like that. But that's okay because that's the way the show works. You know, that's the way the show works. When it comes to people, you need to be relational. You need to have relationships because oftentimes, in fact, there's one hire that just happened recently because the person in charge is somebody I've known a couple of decades. Mentioned to me that they were taking this job and I'm going to have an opening. And because I've known her for 20 years, she said, I'm looking for people. And I said, I think I have an idea for you. And here we are a month later and it worked out. So that wasn't me, hey, who you got as a last minute thing. I'm helping out somebody who is a colleague. And I know that they have in their mind the influence in the company to hire people who are going to tell stories from different communities. They're going to hire people who think that way. And so for me, that's easy to, it's easier to work for than we have this opening, who you got, you know, I'm just not going to do that. I, I actually think that's a little damaging. Not for me and not for them, but for the individual, you know, the person, because they're being thrown into a job. Now, they, I'm, I'm sure it's great to have a job, <laughs> but it should be more than that, right? So our community, the people who go through our program, I check in with them regularly. You know, it doesn't always have to be a terrible thing. You know, I like, how's it going? We haven't talked in three months. Let's get 30 minutes and let's check out how it's going. And I keep building our relationships, and I'm encouraging our mentors to do the same thing, to continue to reach out and stay connected to people. And then when the job offer comes along, you can then decide, or the person can decide, should I apply for that job or not? Tell me about the workplace culture. Tell me about the leadership. Is it worth my time? Even for two years, is it worth me? You know, those kinds of questions. Those are relational questions, not transactional ones.
1: And that also speaks to, you know, what you said before about, you know, career is not just a job or one job, it's a lifetime. You know, this is not nothing new I think in HR and hiring where you know as you're moving forward in your career you're making these connections and getting to know people you, sometimes they're very superficial but sometimes you, you have the opportunity like through your program that you establish these relationships and you see them develop over, over the years as people go into different jobs and, and take on different responsibilities and you
0: can recognize
1: hey this might be somebody to
0: you know, my thinking has elevated over the years, too, in that while I like everybody we meet to come into public media and add value, not everybody's going to stay, you know, because it's not part of their career path. So if they decide that they want to leave and go to this other place, you know, they're alums of our program. We talk about, is this a career building opportunity? Not so much. Is it another job? Is it an opportunity to learn something else, how to do something else in a different way with different people? Probably yes. So if everything falls into place and they end up going, it's a great thing. You know, then I stay in touch with them because you never know. They can always come back. Because I think in public media, we need to continue to create new jobs, not just new jobs replacing somebody who was in it, but newly designed jobs. I'll use, you know, the podcasting industry is one where people have more control over what it is that they're who they're talking to, and it's not based on a screaming headline. You know, it is again talking to people in real time
1: about real things. Yeah. To go back to your article about the idea of diversity and inclusion, I think I told you before we, we turn on the mics, can't tell you how many podcast episodes we've done over the years where, you know, people would just say, yeah, we, we've got this diversity problem in, in journalism. Yeah, we've got to have to fix this someday. And it seems in recent days, as the public has focused now on racial justice and equity, There are a lot of newsrooms that are looking at themselves and, you know, pulling back the curtain and seeing a lot of white faces and wondering, what do we do? On the one hand, to speak to sort of what you're saying, it says, well, they should have been having these relationships all along.
0: So I think you have to start from, you know, how did you get there in the first place? It's the argument when you go to a reporter and you find that in NPR, they said uh, 70 some percent of sources were white. And then the reporter says, well, I don't have time to find any others. And I thought, well, how'd you find them in the first place? You know, you did have to spend some time finding the people that you have. You still have time to go find. You can make the time to go find people that you don't have. And so I would say the same thing. And that is, if you don't have people or they're not applying, why is that? Are people not wanting to move to, you know, whatever, whatever city because they don't think there are enough people of color there and they don't want to be an only in the newsroom? Because when you're an only in the newsroom, it's a lot of extra work, not just to do the job. Someone I was talking to a couple of, a week ago as an only in the newsroom and was given work to do to create a diversity council and all of that. And I'm like, well, they're paying you more for that? Oh, no. This is, so they're, you're giving you extra work and no more money as compensation for the extra time that you're putting in. So that's an issue. That if you really want to truly recruit and develop relationships... There has to be some sort of acknowledgement for the individuals that you want to empower, not just giving them you know, chair of the diversity council, but is there a financial incentive? Can it be part of their, their duties as part of their job? Can their job description be rewritten a little bit to say currently chair of our diversity council and is given, I don't know, three hours a week <laughs> to work on it. I don't know, there are lots of different kinds of ideas to sort of get to the point, to get to where you've the behavior, past behavior of the workplace what has the culture been like how is it that we've gone about hiring people and then what is it within that system that has not brought people of color to where we are
1: yeah i remember seeing some recent tweets from some reporters from journalists of color who were just kind of fed up you know don't come to me to try to fill this this space on your staff just so that you look like you have a diverse workforce you know why wasn't this part of the conversation why are you in this position And what are you going to do to change to make sure that you can get out of this position? In the meantime, I don't want to be that one person just to fill in that checkbox and then, as you said, be put in charge of the focus of diversity in the newsroom.
0: There's a balance. I mean, it's like you have to and I'm not going to, you know, I don't speak for everybody, uh, everybody of color in their situations. But generally, I mean, I'll use my own experience. I grew up in Oklahoma and not very many people of color there and particularly black, mostly Native American Minority population in Oklahoma. I can remember some conversations along those lines, but you know, back in those days, I was more interested in establishing my career, doing the things I was, you know, advised to do. In addition to having some ideas about doing things, I just wanted to get into a position where, at some point, I was believed I'd get into a position of authority to where then I could turn around and you and I are now having this conversation. Again, it's a slow climb. So for people, you know, I. I certainly feel very, very angry for those people who have been on Twitter blasting away because it's real for them. It's not to be dismissed. If they feel that way, there's a reason why they feel that way. And that needs to be examined. Why is it? How did that happen? Who are the people that had this person feel that way? And then, you know, writing letters, putting them up on Twitter and Medium and places like that. I mean, if it gets to that point, it's really bad. You know, that they've decided it's better for me to risk my job than to sit down and have a meeting with the CEO. You know, so you have to address that. And it's unfortunate that it had to come to this level. But I think that's where we are now, that there are people in particular, this next generation are not afraid to say anything. They're willing to risk their jobs in the name of equity. And so, you know, I wasn't one of those people. You know, I wasn't really, and we didn't have social media back then. You know, we didn't have smartphones back then either. So for me, it was, let me just focus on the thing that I think will work. And that is if we just go to the conferences, meet people, shake a lot of hands, create training opportunities, identify people and do the long game work, I'll cross my fingers and cross my toes and everything else I can cross that it's going to work. I just have to be relentless about it. And that's what's happened. That's totally what happened. Not to, I mean, I'm sort of breaking my arm, patting myself on the back here, <laughs> but it's kind of like proof of concept, proof of concept. This actually works. It does.
1: Yeah. You know, I was just thinking before we, we started our interview, before I called you that one of my neighbors is they're loading up their, their moving van today. And I was sitting here thinking, you know, I've been in this house such a long time. He says, you know, we should really think about moving. And then I was thinking, well, we've been here so long. There's so much stuff here. It's, it's so entrenched. It would take so much effort for me to change, even though I can see immediately the the benefit of being in a different place. And so to pull the curtain back on this metaphor, uh, (laughs) I think it's a lot of newsrooms. I mean, it's going to take work to make change. And looking ahead, you can see, yeah, that would be a better world to be in. Whatever it takes, people writing angry tweets, writing angry emails to, you know, poke people, to get them out of their their rut and say, you know, yeah, it is important to change and I, and I need to make an effort to change.
0: Yeah. But to move beyond the acknowledgement that I need to change or there needs to be change, you have to look at systems. You know, how is it we got here in the first place? Again, I'll get back to the transactionalism yeah so you know they say you have to be inside to to, to affect this and change the system so i think ultimately that's why i'm still here is because i started seeing results and the more results that you see the more you're inclined to stay in you know, i tend to talk up the program in very positive ways but it's a lot of work <laughs> it's almost seven days a week staying on top of everything you know i'm not going to go on and on about how difficult it is because at times it is because you're talking about like a couple of years, we did ten projects in ten c- cities with ten different sets of people, with ten different schedules, you know. And then you bring yeah. in the students, and then you have all these other, you know. So it's like there's a lot of organizational challenge to just even doing a five-day sprint. I can imagine, as you were saying, that you've been, you know, once you've been in the place for a long time and everything seems to be working, I don't have to do anything. Everything seems to be working, and that's the time that you should start making yourself uncomfortable. Everything seems to be working. Okay, that's fine, but are we being left behind? Are there reasons why we can't get true representation of the Latino community on our air? Why aren't we reaching out to more Native American storytellers? And is there an opportunity to create a show or a podcast? There are unlimited ideas out there to affect your source diversity. There's a lot you can be doing. So if you're complacent and you think everything's working, chances are there's a lot you're missing. And you have to spend time thinking about what are we not doing? What's the thing that we're not doing? And critically listening to your own air, (laughs) you know, not just in the meeting, but, you know, on the air or whatever it is, the content that you're creating, what is it we're not doing? What do we need to be doing? And how do we get to like true representation of our community? How do we get there? And it's not just transactionally hiring people also. It goes all the way up to the advisory board or the community board. You know, who's on that? Who are the volunteers who are working on our community board? Are they coming from the communities? And do we actually listen to them? Those aren't insurmountable odds. They're just not.
1: And I don't think they are at all. At the start, there needs to be a recognition that there's a problem and then, that then you know, figuring out what direction you need to go and make, make the effort to change and understand that you'll be criticized for some things and the, some things are not going to work the way you want them to and, but ultimately whatever that goal is whatever that direction you're heading for you're going to you're going to achieve it and you'll be in a better position i mean we do a lot of podcasts about talking about audience engagement a lot of the conversations have been about old legacy systems trying to reach you know, people of color and represent different types of communities because that's new audience for them, the people that are not reading their stories because those stories don't speak to them. They don't speak to their concerns. And so, you know, one idea is, oh, yeah, we'll just hire some people of color and they'll do that. But it's more than that. It's just recognizing that you need to be in those communities and talking to all different types of people you need to reflect that community more. And that does mean hiring. That means it also means, you know, people in management who are making different decisions. And like you said, the the volunteers and the the supervisors as well.
0: Yeah. If I'm, you know, leading a station, you know, one of our stations, you know, it's who are we not talking to? Why do we think that that community won't contribute to our fundraiser? They won't contribute, not because they don't have any money, but because we're not actually talking to them. Or we bring people in when there's a breaking news story. (laughs) Or we do some sort of superficial something. So there's a reason why they're not listening. When you go into the community and you actually talk to people, you have to be sincere. I haven't seen a lot of sincerity about reaching out to communities of color and bringing people to the table, and then actually listening to ideas and trying some. And then, yeah, you'll get criticized. Criticism comes with it. That's part of the job, you know. And who is it? It's my uh, one of my managing editors, Stephanie Quo at PRX says feedback is a gift. You know, treat it as a gift. People can help you. If you're transparent and open, you'll find that people will come with you. They will.
1: And people respect you if you take the criticism and make a concerted, honest, sincere effort to change and listen. They'll be more open to helping you in the future. Very few times in my lifetime, in any journalistic thing where, where I've, you know, I'm more from a political means where I'd, I'd go and I, you know, I used to, when I was working at the newspaper, I used to You know, hear the worst things from local Republicans about, oh, you guys don't cover us, you don't cover this. But I would go there and I cover their things, and then I would get these wonderful emails from them saying, You did such a great job. Nobody ever covers us like that. That should be across everything you do. You should find those voices that can't, that aren't being heard, and help them find audiences. I I think we could probably talk for a long time. I don't know if we're going to get any, I don't think we're going to get down to any specific solutions except, you know, let's go out there and make sure we make yourself uncomfortable
0: don't be uncomfortable because somebody went on twitter and made you uncomfortable right but you could probably head that off (laughs) (laughs) you know you probably could if you ask yourself what are we not doing let's make a list and try to get to the things that we're not doing and create a system in which we can get to the things that we're not doing
1: yeah that sounds like a good plan doug thanks for coming on the podcast again this has been great i meant to ask you this How, how can people get involved with next generation radio
0: Well, first of all, our applicants are either in college, in school, or at least no more than one year post-graduation. So for example, our upcoming project with Colorado Public Radio, if they graduated in fall of 2019, they're still eligible to apply for the program. Uh, Next year, we're looking at having an early career program, and that'll be five years or less of professional experience. So they can go to nextgenradio.org slash apply. We also have an FAQ page. Um, I try to encourage people to do as much reading as possible before they apply because there are times when I say, Did you read the FAQs? <laughs> so they can go through our website, nextgenradio.org, and also follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And it's all at nextgenradio.
1: Radio. So, how many, how many programs do you do a year?
0: This year we'll end up because we had to pivot and shove everything from the front of the year to the end, we'll end up doing seven camps. And then next year, you know, we did 10 two years in a row and it felt really exhausting. But because we're remote and I don't have to travel and stay in a hotel and get on an airplane and all of that, it'd be interesting to see what, uh, how many we can do. So I would say on average we do seven to eight per year.
1: Okay, cool. Well, uh, thanks again. Take care.
0: All right. Thanks, Michael.
1: You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.